You're listening to the City Church Tallahassee podcast. For more information about City Church, please visit us online at citychurchtallahassee.com. Hey, good morning. Happy Father's Day. My name is Dean. I'm the pastor at City Church. Thanks for joining us this morning on this rainy day. We're doing three different books this morning as we're in the Bible in a year, 66 books in 52 weeks. We're starting the Minor Prophets this week, uh, which is Hosea. We're going to be in Hosea. Joel and Amos, and they're called minor prophets, not because they're insignificant or not as varsity level as the major prophets. Uh, They're called that simply because they're just smaller, uh, just shorter books of the Bible uh, that we're going to kind of cram in uh, to one sermon to help us understand exactly what it is that God has to say to his people through his word. Uh, Awesome to sing the beliefs of the church. I love the band leading us in that last song, declaring what we believe together. That's what we have to hold on to. Uh, That is the hope we have, is what we believe, what we believe to be true about God and the scriptures, Jesus Christ, the church, all these things matter significantly to us. Uh, so how important for us to gather and rally around we believe together. Uh, good to have our middle school and high school students back after a great week. Uh, we've got some of them here. Uh, and I'm so thrilled for that experience they had. One of my uh, greatest friends, Eric Reed, was their camp preacher for the week. And uh, I had breakfast with him in, on Monday in Nashville uh, before he left to go be with our students. And he was just fired up. And I got texts all week about just how we're going to have baptisms coming for students who gave their lives to the Lord at camp. I mean, how awesome is that? We're going to see that next couple of weeks. Just awesome things. Uh, such as that. Also, happy Father's Day to my dad. I, I get privileged to be able to have a microphone, but I'll give a shout out to my dad. Dad, happy Father's Day. Thankful for you. Love you. I'm the best dad. So happy Father's Day. Grateful for you. So I'm thankful for him, and I'm going to pray before I start crying. So here we go. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for your word. What a privilege it is to have the scriptures. Let us never take that for granted. There's nothing we can add to it in our cleverness. Lord, how bold would it be, foolishly bold, to try to take something away from the scriptures? We want to believe in the sufficiency of your word. We don't add or take away, but to preach it as it is, that's what you have given us, the Bible, and we're thankful people. But we're thankful you're a God who shows us love and mercy and compassion. And I ask this morning as we declare your good news, the seriousness also of your truth, that we will be reminded that we have a good and perfect heavenly father. Lord, I'm thankful that as a dad myself, I don't have to be perfect because you are. So I ask that today we'll all be able to experience together uh, the goodness and grace of our God in Jesus Christ. Please be with all the churches in our community as they gather today, as we know we're not the only ones doing this. Lord, we ask that your word will fill the pulpits across our city, and I ask you to keep the enemy out of this place and out of our city. Lord, help me speak this morning. Your word's not mine. In the, word, in the name of Jesus, amen. Book of Hosea, chapter 1. Here is what happens out of the gate. This is going to sound really strange to you at first, but it's supposed to sound strange because God's grace is that radical. Like God's grace is that, we could say, foolish to the world. When the Lord first spoke to Hosea, he said this to him. Go and marry a woman of promiscuity. It's like, huh? And have children of promiscuity. For the land is committing blatant acts of promiscuity by abandoning the Lord. So we're told in the next verse that Hosea goes and marries someone who fit this description named Gomer. Anyone name their daughter Gomer? Anybody out there? Hopefully not. I'd be in big trouble. That person's definitely leaving the church after that joke. So it continues, with the, and then it goes into continue this whole just oddness and these claims that seem so strange by being told what to name his children. One of his daughters, he's going to name what would give us the understanding of the thought of no mercy. 
a son would be named the equivalent of the meaning of not my people. Key aspects of God's covenant with Israel, that God's going to have mercy on them, that he's going to make them a people of his own, and now we see the covenant of Israel seeming like it's reversed. Because the analogy here is that God's people have broken the covenant, basically have cheated on him, committed a type of spiritual adultery, the Exodus covenant of God taking his people and leading them into freedom, the survivors of that and their ancestors, I should say, will now be taken into exile because their rebellion against God. Pretty dire straits here. And here is Hosea, and God is calling Hosea to go marry this woman named Gomer who was described as what I read to you just a moment ago. But thankfully, the story doesn't end here. Chapter 3, verse 1, And the Lord said to me, Go again, show love to a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Just as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love raisin cakes. Even God is against raisin cakes. Don't forget that. So here we see that Hosea marries Gomer. And what is the point of this story? Why is this happening? Gomer and Hosea's marriage represents, is a visible portrait for us of the invisible reality of Christ and the church. In other words, we are Gomer. And that should actually be extremely comforting rather than offensive for us. We are Gomer in this story. And God himself is showing us his unwavering love for his adulterous people. See, the story of Hosea and Gomer reminds us that God loves us not because of our faithfulness, but because of his. God loves us not because of our faithfulness, but because of his. Maybe you've told your kids before, if you're a dad, there's nothing that you could ever do to make me love you more or make me love you less. I, I love you because you're my child. Like you are the person that God has given me. Now that's imperfect dads saying something like that. Imperfect dads thinking something like that. But here's our perfect heavenly father telling us really an Old Testament version of it's by grace you are saved through faith, not by works, so no one can boast. That God is the initiator of our salvation. He's the one who carries it through. He's the one that finishes our salvation when Christ returns. And he does this all for a people who consistently want to abandon him and turn their back on him. And here he is saying is my commitment to my people is bigger than what they do. My commitment to my people is based on who I am. My friend Brandon Smith, who's a professor at Cedarville University, wrote this. He says, we are Gomer. We are spiritual adulterers. We want to have it our way. And we are willing to reject God's covenantal faithfulness for fleeting one-night stands with idols. While it's hard to admit that we are no different than Gomer, it is a truth that we can embrace with humility and comfort. And throughout the story of Hosea, you see over and over again, Gomer breaking Hosea's heart, unfaithful, 
over and over again, yet Hosea continuing to love and pursue his bride. Here we are called the bride of Christ. The scriptures actually point to marriage, the institution of marriage as that visible portrait that points us to the invisible reality of our union with Christ. We're told as husbands to love our wives as Christ loved the church. Well, how much did Christ love the church? He, he died for the church. That marriage union points us to a greater reality of who we are with the Lord. So here are rebellious people and God is telling them, I have not forgotten about you. Like, I'm still here. Like, you've gone away, I'm not going away. See, Jesus' life, ministry, death, resurrection, his ascension to heaven, and his second coming show us that God wasn't telling Hosea to do something he wasn't willing to do on a much grander scale. God calls you to forgive someone who's wronged you. He's not asking you to do something that he hasn't done himself. God's asking you to pursue reconciliation through his word, something that's broken. Guess what? God has reconciled you to himself. He did not forsake his people, despite a very long history. We've been in the Old Testament since January. Like a very long history of disobedience, of indifference. And we could say that God's sending, the sending, the Father's sending of the Son, is the definition of grace. It's unmerited, it was not deserved. It should not have been earned, it wasn't earned. It was this long-standing favor of God over his people. See, Christ saves, and he continues to intercede for the bride right now who covets other men instead of their groom. And until we see God face to face, we're gonna all continue to be drawn to other things. We're going to believe lies. There's more to be gained by disobeying God than there is to be gained by obeying him. We're going to think we have to go around God for all the things we're looking for rather than actually right to God. And that lure is there regularly trying to pull us in and what we might call a mistake or a mess up or just a moment of, of just you know forgetting God calls spiritual adultery. But the good news is, no matter how faithless God's people become, God can never bear to give his people up. Why? Because of his love for them? But even more than that, because of his own glory and his ability to do what only God can do, and that is to perfectly, without blemish, keep his covenant. Keep his promise that he would redeem a people to himself. See, Hosea's marriage and Calvary's cross where Jesus died, it reveals the incredible, unthinkable, unfathomable love that we have in Christ. They show the extent to which God will never give up on rebels like us. Like, do you understand that? Do you see how much greater this is than just like a sentimental, oh, God loves me? Because simply a sentimental, just God loves me, just kind of a feeling, kind of Valentine's kind of way, that's not going to really get you through this life. What's going to get you through this life is knowing that God's love is an unwavering commitment to you. For those who are in Christ. A love that will not be abandoned. A love that does not change because you sin. 
A love that's so unthinkable that the image he gives us is a husband pursuing an adulterous wife. Pursuing her when she's already doing those things, already in that lifestyle. He says, go marry her. Like, it's not like if it happened later on down the road that that's one thing in itself, but he's going out of the gate to get her. He's pursuing her. And then after marriage, it continues. After our union with Christ, our sin continues. Yet here God continues to be the faithful husband pursuing the bride that has been purchased through the blood of Christ. He says this, how can I give you up, Ephraim? These are names of Israel. How can I surrender you, Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? I've had a change of heart. My compassion is stirred. I will not vent the full fury of my anger. I will not turn back to destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not man, as in you can't figure me out fully. This doesn't make sense to you. By the world's standards, this is foolishness. The Holy One among you, I will not come in rage. Now we are told in the scriptures that when it comes to people who have fully rejected and rebelled against God and never become his people, that one day he will come in rage and punish sinners as they deserve. But for the people of God who've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, this is guaranteed to never happen to us. The adulterous bride is made new, made clean, forgiven, declared not guilty of their sins, received the righteousness of Jesus, and yet still, even though we are prone to wander, our God continues to be faithful and to call us to himself. What an incredible book the book of Hosea truly is. I'd love for you to read it on your own. A visible portrait of what we would call the foolishness of the gospel to the world. The book of 1 Corinthians, it tells us that, that the gospel message is foolishness to the world. It's foolishness. They're never going to understand unless God opens their eyes by his grace to do so. So our job is not to try to make Christianity cooler or more palatable, but rather to continue to proclaim the foolish message of God's love and grace for sinners, his bride that he continues to pursue. Next we have the book of Joel, which is a prophetic poem that quotes many books of the Old Testament. You can tell that Joel spent much time learning the scriptures much time understanding God's story of his people up to that time. And the book of Joel calls out Israel for sin, but never really gets specific about which sins. They're just sinners in general. It's just like, what's up, sinners? I mean, it's not even specific. It's not even a list. It's here's who you are. We see a few things. We see the judgment against Judah that's coming, and also what's referred to as the day of the Lord. That's the theme of the book of Joel, the day of the Lord. So, so what is the day of the Lord? What does that mean? The day of the Lord is really two things. It is, one, God's ultimate judgment over the world, but it's also God's salvation and redemption of his people. You see both of those things happening together in the day of the Lord. And a few things happen, and we're told out of the book of Joel, there's going to be a locust invasion. That's like my worst nightmare. A locust invasion 
which is a forerunner of the day of the Lord, punished this way. And then we see an army invasion, which is the arrival of the day of the Lord. That's sort of the, the imagery it gives, the arrival kind of coming in like an army the day of the Lord. We see the past in terms of, in the book of Joel, what has happened, what God's people have done. Then we also see the future of what will happen for God's people and for God's world. We see this, the Lord makes his voice heard in the presence of his army. His camp is very large. Those who carry out his command are powerful. Indeed, the day of the Lord is terrible and dreadful. Who can endure it? Even now, this is the Lord's declaration. Turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, weeping, and mourning. He's given them a chance to repent of their sins, to turn away from their idol worship. Tear your hearts, not just your clothes. And return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, and he relents from sending disaster. You see that God's judgment and God's love are never at odds with each other in the Bible. Like his punishment of sin and his compassion for sinners are always in harmony. Like here you see right here he's saying things like, who can, who can survive, who can endure the day of the Lord? And then the exact same paragraph, he says that he's gracious, that he's compassionate, and the answer to who can endure the day of the Lord is only the person who is without sin. And the only person who's ever been without sin is Jesus Christ. So Jesus endured the death that we deserved and experienced and died a death that we deserve for our sin against God. So now since we have received his righteousness, we actually can, by God's compassion and mercy, be free from judgment and the wrath of God and the dreadful, as he calls it, day of the Lord. God relents. He is gracious and compassionate. See, Joel calls the people of God to turn towards God, assuming that even now, if they return to the Lord with all their hearts, that he's going to be gracious to them. He's going to be merciful to them. The whole community, he says, should cry out to the Lord and look to him, but he mentions their hearts. Notice he doesn't just say, get your actions in order. He doesn't just say, knock it off and behave yourself. He says, I care about your heart. Like, this matters to me. As in not just your external religious actions that anybody can pull off, but a sincerity that you actually believe these things to be true. He says, tear your hearts, not your clothes. In other words, don't just give me a show of religion. Don't just give me a show. And then he quotes from Exodus about God being merciful and compassionate. But how incredible to know that God deeply cares about our hearts. Not just our external conformity, even though there are rules, that is part of being in a relationship. There's rules in any relationship for it to work, for it to flourish. But that God cares even more about that. He cares about what's happening in here. That's why you see Jesus say, when, when you pray, Matthew chapter 6, go in the room and shut the door. And don't stand on the street corner so everybody can hear you. Why? Because you're not praying to sound spiritual. You're praying because of your relationship with God. I, I, I've told people before, when a lot of people are afraid to pray out loud, it kind of freaks them out a little bit, right? 
Or when you do pray out loud, do you feel like you have to kind of perform and pray differently than you would by yourself? And a lot of times people can, folks can feel a little guilty about that, a little bit of shame about how they're afraid to pray out loud and actually go, I, I, I think it's actually pretty scriptural to not love to pray out loud. Because Jesus said when you pray to go in your room and shut the door in secret so that no one can hear you. He cares much more about that than how you sound when you're praying at dinner or praying over an event. God cares about your heart. He says when you're fasting, don't let anybody know. Why, because it's a cardinal sin for someone to know you're fasting? No, because he wants to make sure you're not doing it for other people, but because of your heart. When you contribute financially to the church, the ammunition that makes the mission go, we're not naming buildings after people here because we want it to be something that's from the heart, not something that's broadcasted or look at me or, or, or projected. Jesus said where your treasure is, there your heart is also. Like God cares deeply, not just about your actions, but about your motives. So for folks like me and folks like you who are prone to be spiritual adulterers and don't always have good motives, the good news is God continues to point us to himself as the reason, his glory as the reason, his grace as the reason. Not the show of religion, but hearts he cares about. And then he points us to the future in the book of Joel and gives us God's response, which is a future day of the Lord that is coming. And we're told that in that day, God will have his presence with his people. They won't have to go to a temple. They won't have to have a priest. Like Because of the work of Christ, the Holy Spirit will come and then God will dwell with his people. He will dwell with his people. We see that in the Son and we will see that with Spirit. We see God punishing evil. That one day there will be a new heavens and a new earth and that all injustice will be taken away. That he will have the final word, that he is the great vindicator. The vengeance actually is his. People say, where is God in this? Why isn't God dealing with this? Why is this happening? Why is evil allowed? And the answer is, be not mistaken. He will deal with all of that one day. He will have the final word. And then we're told he'll restore the earth. In the book of Joel, he'll make things new. The earth is not something that he's going to destroy. He's going to renew it. And it's a wonderful thing, this day of the Lord for the Christian because all things will be made right again. God's presence with his people, in the book of Acts, they quote Joel when the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost as a fulfillment of that. We'll see God punish evil once and for all, and then God restore the whole earth. That's great news for the Christian, that God has the world in his hands. A song you maybe heard as a kid, he's got the whole world in his hands. It's some of the best theology you'll ever learn. He is sovereign over all. And we'll have the final word on behalf of his namesake, on behalf of his people. And then we get to the book of Amos. Famous Amos. Random fact, famous Amos, as in famous Amos cookies, used to live in Tallahassee. Didn't know if you knew that. There's a little nugget for the day. All roads lead back to Tallahassee. We see here what are called oracles of judgment. God calls out the surrounding nations around Israel and basically says, I'm going to open a can on all y'all. I mean, everyone who's going against his people. Everyone who is cursing the people of God. 
God told Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, I will bless those who bless you, I will curse those who curse you, and the surrounding nations are about to get all the cursing. But Israel's sitting there going, that's right, that's right, you know, don't mess with us. You know, we're God's people, and then God goes, oh, whoa, 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 whoa. You got it coming too. You have it coming too. Back to Hosea, because of your spiritual adultery, because of your love of the world, because of your desire to be like them rather than a distinct people of God, because of your worship of false gods rather than the worship of me. He says, listen to this message, Amos chapter 3, that the Lord has spoken against you. So the past two chapters, he's thrown it all on everybody else. Now he's like, whoa, your turn. He goes, Israelites against the entire clan that I brought from the land of Egypt. As in my people. And he reminds them again their story of redemption. Here's what I've done for you. I brought you out of captivity, out of slavery. I'm your God. You're my people. He goes, I've known only you out of the clans of the earth. And since you're my people, yeah, you think I'm going to deal with other people's kids. How about when it's my kids? I will punish you for all your iniquities. Your sin is not going to go unpunished. He tells them that justice and righteousness and the treatment of other people are key evidences of a right relationship to the Lord. Because here are people who are doing some of the external religious things, but they're paying no attention to the injustices all around them. And God's saying, you can show all the righteousness in the world, but if you don't care about these things, the hurting around you, the pain around you, the injustice around you, he said, I'm not buying what you claim to believe. That religious ritual in the absence of just and righteous treatment of others, that it's disgusting to God. He doesn't want anything to do with your festivals. It's not going to lead to actually having real compassion on real people as God has had compassion on you. Chapter 5, the Lord says to the house of Israel, here's the alternative. He says, seek me and live. And if you seek me, guess what's going to happen? You're going to love others. You're going to love your community. He goes, and they despise the one, verse 10, who speaks with integrity. Therefore, because you trample on the poor and exact a grain tax from him, you will never live in the house of cut stone you have built. You will never drink the wine from the lush vineyards you have planted. For I know your crimes are many and your sins are innumerable. They oppress the righteous, take a bribe, and deprive the poor of justice at the city gates. Therefore, those who have insight will keep silent at such a time. The days are evil. So what is his suggestion? Not his suggestion, his, his command, his declaration to them, verse 14, pursue good and not evil, so you may live, and the Lord, the God of armies, will be with you as you have claimed. He says, hate evil. Hate evil and love good. Establish justice at the city gates. Like when you see injustices happen as a believer, it should cause something in your heart that stirs, that hates what you see taking place. It shouldn't be the world that gets outraged at injustices. It should first and foremost be believers. And then we're called to act on those things. How sad when we first think politically before we think biblically about the important matters of this world. And they stretch across party lines. 
And we're called to be light and to be truth and to see individual needs and do whatever we can to meet those individual needs. It says, perhaps the Lord, the God of armies, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. He rebelled against God. You're just external, no internal. Perhaps God will be merciful to his people. He says this to them, I hate and despise your feasts. I can't stand the stench of your solemn assemblies. Even if you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, they're act of worship, I will not accept them. I will have no regard for your fellowship offerings of fattened cattle. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I don't want to hear all your worship music you're saying if you're not going to take something outside of these doors and bring a heart change about you. He goes, I will not listen to the music of your harps. He goes, but let justice flow like water and righteousness like an unfailing stream. One of the most quoted passages of pastors during the civil rights movement that said this is evil and this is not the way. These are the verses that were quoted. Let justice flow like water and righteousness like an unfailing stream. That God's going to unlock that one day for all creation and his renewed heaven and renewed earth. But in the meantime, he wants us to, as earth, as it is in heaven, as the Lord's Prayer says, and pursue peace and reconciliation and justice. When I see let justice flow like water, and righteousness like an unfailing stream. I think of unborn children who face injustices regularly. Probably the biggest injustice in our nation today. I think of those mistreated when they come into this country trying to find a better life for their family. I think of religious persecution in closed countries to the gospel around the world. I think of genocides that are taking place. And the thought that comes to mind is God let justice flow like water and righteousness like an unfailing stream. House of Israel, was it sacrifices and grain offerings you presented to me during the 40 years in the wilderness? But you have taken up Sakath, your king, and Kaiwan, your star god. Images you've made for yourselves. That's what's really happening here. There's a bigger picture. It's not just you're failing to do these things. You have an idol problem. Your worship isn't ultimately devoted to God, and because of that, you're going to carry it out in ways that are unpleasing to God. So I will send you into exile beyond Damascus. He warned them, told them what was coming. The Lord of God, the Lord, the God of armies is his name, and there's some actually tough words in the Bible. He has spoken. Like he has declared this. But thankfully, God loves his adulterous bride. God has a people for himself that he has not and will not forget. And here as we see at the very end of Amos, this glimmer of hope over four verses. In that day, I will restore the fallen shelter of David, the collapsed people of God. I'll repair its gaps, restore its ruins, and rebuild it as, day, as in the days of old. Not just the building of the temple. God will rebuild a people, a spiritual people, he's saying, where he himself will dwell. So they may possess the remnant of Edom 
and all the nations that bear my name. This is the declaration of the Lord. He will do this. Look, the days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration. When the plowman will overtake the reaper and the one who treads grapes, the sower's seed, the mountains will drip with sweet wine and all the hills will flow with it. Before he said, you won't be able to have wine from the vineyards. And now he's saying that wine's gonna be really sweet. A big swing. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel. That word restore, God's the great restorer. He rebuilds what is broken. They will rebuild and occupy ruined cities, plant vineyards and drink their wine, make gardens and eat their produce. A barren land will be fruitful again, physically and spiritually. I will plant them on their land and they will never be uprooted from the land I have given them. The Lord your God has spoken. So as we understand that in New Testament times, in New Testament terms, what does this mean for us? It means the people of God who have been restored and redeemed by God, they can drink the living water that is Jesus Christ, the bread of life that is the word of God, the Jesus himself. It means that those of us who know Jesus, we will never be taken out of his land. As in we will never be taken out of that relationship with him. That our union with Christ is unbreakable that he continues to pursue gomers and keeps us gomers in right relationship with him, even though oftentimes we don't even want it because we're enticed and we're pulled by the draw of this world. And that leads us then to want a Christianity that maybe gives us enough of Jesus to be associated with him, but not in any way that interferes with our lives. But what happens is when we become aware of the goodness and grace of God and believe that Jesus actually is better, that God's greatest blessing is himself, then our affections begin to go towards our spiritual husband. Our affections begin to change from the people of this world, the things of this world, to a love for the one who loved us first and loves us always and loves us without condition. God will punish sin. He says he has spoken. He will punish sin. Why? Because he's a holy God. He can't let sin go unpunished. It would violate everything that he is. It would be an assault on his own glory, his own namesake. It would also minimize his love. If he was just like, eh, meh. I don't know why I made that noise, but it's that kind of attitude. Just whatever. It's all good. Try harder next time. No, no, no. God will not let sin go unpunished. Thankfully, Jesus, who never sinned, was punished in our place, a death that we deserved, not him. So now those of us have been made his people, declared his people. Let us be people now who are so aware of the amazing grace of our God, that great salvation, that we continue to pursue the one who always pursues us. 1 John 4 This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us. How incredible. He's a faithful God, a loving God, a compassionate God, and a God who continues to be Hosea to gomers like us. Isn't that great news? Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful for these stories, for warnings, for history for seeing how you have dealt with your people and continue to deal with your people. You are a patient God. 
such a patient God. Like categories for how to define patience, we can't even fill them up because of how patient you are with us is so unthinkable, so unfathomable. There is no comparison we have in this world to make sense of it. But I thank you you give us a glimpse, a glimpse to understand. And the story of Hosea and Gomer, and the story of the, your dealings with your people and Joel and Amos, or we are people who anticipate the day of the Lord where you will bring your final judgment once and for all. And I thank you for those who are in Christ. The judgment is not guilty. Your children, your people, compassion and mercy and love received from you, our great God. Lord, let us be a people, starting with myself, who believe the greatest blessing that exists in all of life is you. Life with you. A relationship with you. And the reality that you are the exact one you claim to be and that you have gone to great lengths to make a people for yourself. Let us believe that together. Let us repent of our sins and trust in Christ. We ask this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, if you're here today, before we sing our last song, I would encourage you, if you want to have a conversation with someone about what it means to know Jesus, what it means to trust in the Lord, we have a care room out in the lobby. It's a closed-in room. There'll be volunteers ready to pray with you, answer any questions you might have. Don't miss the opportunity to have a conversation with someone, have some questions to answer about what it means to trust in the Lord and become a part of his people. It's the best life there is. It's not easy, but it's the life, life with God. You're invited to it through a relationship with Jesus Christ. Let's stand together and sing some good news.